Welcome back. This is Tuesday morning. I'm Dan Blewett. This is the morning brushback. I am joined by my co-host Bobby Stevens. Robert, how you doing? Good. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Happy post Memorial Day to you too. Yeah, it was uh relatively quiet. I believe my mic is on the up and up today. So you sound we're fantastic. Off, we're, we're, we're off and running. We're both wearing blue shirts. Um, what a weekend! But. What did you What did you do for Memorial Day, Robert? Uh, it was pretty tame. I went by my parents. This was the first time that I had seen uh, like all my nieces and nephews together since probably February. So it was good. We had the pool in the backyard, like the blow up pool for them to splash around in, and mm-hmm. and I had I had some alcohol in my cup. So it was a fantastic weekend for for me. How do you feel about Coca Cola? I'm not a fan. The the classic beverage. No? I'm not a fan. I don't like... You know what? I was never allowed to drink pop. We call it pop in the Midwest. I know. You should stop. I was never allowed to drink it when I was younger. So it's... I never like... Anytime I drink it, it just makes me more thirsty. So I just don't like it. But if I had to choose, if you're going to make me choose one or the other, I'm going to choose Pepsi. So I like never drink soda and I never buy soda. But when I was in Turkey last year, if you ordered a soda, you got a little like eight ounce glass bottle of it, which I was like, which is made with like real sugar and all these other things. Hold on. I got a, I have a tech, tech issue. Tech real, issue. real sugar Coca-Cola or Pepsi is like the Mexican Coke, which it may be made with real drugs is unbelievably good. Like you can't even deny that people that don't like pop, drink Mexican Coke, and they're like, this is something I need to have. I, I've had well, that one, was... actually had one recently, and I wanted a second one. I've refrained, but. That was my point, and good job grabbing that, because my, my mic almost died. I uh, didn't connect a, a power cl- uh, plug to my mic, but. So, yeah, so I don't, ev- like, I never, ever, don't ever give me, like, a can of Coke or a, a plastic bottle of Coke. It just, it's just not, not good because of the corn syrup, but. I got a couple glass bottles of Mexican Coke, the real sugar Coke, and it's just like the best thing. It's like the best so thing. Good. So, so yesterday I put one of those in my little um, double insulated bottle thing and took it down to the National Mall. And I sat there and I did some writing and just like wandered around and just like hung out under a tree in the shade with my frosty cold throwback Coca Cola, and it was amazing. It was like it's like this is the best. It's just the best. Did you say glass bottle? Yeah, well, they come in a glass bottle. I, I didn't bring the glass bottle. I dumped it in my um, no, there's like, double walled one. That is a correct way to drink Coke. That glass bottle. Yeah, it's it's a whole everything. different experience. So yeah, if you're out there better. and you don't remember the magic of real sugar Coke, it's like way more expensive. It's like a dollar twenty five for a one twelve ounce bottle, but it's totally worth it. I mean, especially you know what's weird. And I was thinking about this the other day. There were a million uh, soft serve ice cream trucks down on the National Mall, like so many of them. And they had some like really good offerings. And I was going to get one. I was like, nah, I was like kind of wavering. I never did. But it's weird how our perception of pricing completely changes just based on where we are. If I was like, you know, it was like $4 or $5 for a cone, I think. And it's like, that's not unreasonable. 
Like I would pay that. If it feels like seven dollars, I'd be like, go screw yourself. But that was reasonable. But but that's the price of an entire two quarts of ice cream in your grocery store. You know what I mean? And like and, and you and, other and you shop around items. for that. You shop around for that two quart that quart of ice cream. Yeah, and other four dollar items in the grocery store, you're like, eh, I don't really need that. That's kind of expensive. But then when you're out, it's just your your brain just like flips a switch, and I find it somewhat bizarre. The same thing Why? with that Mexican Coke. It's a dollar twenty five. You're like, man, it's kind of expensive. Like five bucks for four of those little bottles. But then if you're out in the town, you've no no problem spending six dollars on a beer, or like whatever else. You know, it's just it is kind of strange a like human behavior. Because it's not like you're, oh, well, I get this beer, but I get to sit in this magical restaurant for an hour. What a bargain. It's just you're like. Play, you're paying for the you ambiance. Two, you're paying two, for the scene. I realize that you are, but you you don't think that way. You just like have two price lists in your brain and they just immediately switch. I just think it's kind of fascinating. That's all. It's, that was it's, my point. It's, it's clear. It's it's very evident when you're when you're in a big city like Chicago and you go downtown and you and the beers are eleven dollars for mm-hmm. the for the local craft beer and you're like and and the crazy part of you is like nah, that's not that bad that's a decent price you know when you can get a case of bush light for 9.99 like we used to do in high in college and i said high school when yeah. i meant high school but in college and you're like and you're just in you're squabbling with your friends over the 11.99 30 rack instead of the 9.99 and here i am paying 15 dollars for a spotted cow it's not worth it, by the way. Yeah. Well, and, and coffee's, coffee's the same way. Like, easily shell out five bucks for a coffee that costs 14 cents to make it home. You can get a whole thing of Folgers for 99 cents. I have so much Folgers. Because I like, <laughs> for those of you listening, and this may be zero people this morning on Memorial Day Tuesday, um, I, like, I like gas station coffee. I don't drink, like, coffee coffee. Like, I'm drinking coffee right now. But if I drink coffee, I don't want like good coffee. I just Starbucks? like it to be kind of watery. No, well, Starbucks coffee is trash. It just tastes like burnt acorns. They do a bad job with coffee. But I either want like a like a espresso beverage, or I want just like kind of watery diner gas station coffee. Like that's like my jam. So this quarantine has like been totally fine. I make my own crappy coffee. I bought like fifteen pounds of it from Costco for like four dollars. Oh god! I'm living, I'm living the dream. That's not a real price, but I'm living the dream. Diner coffee, burnt diner coffee is the best coffee. I don't it's think the there's best. any. There's no disputing diner that. Now, coffee gas so station, great. gas station coffee is a different story because you go it's to a highly gas variable. Station. Gas station coffee is the thing that like serial killers are, are made for. I mean, if you you're a crazy Ela- person, Ela- if you elaborate. Walk, if you're crazy, if you walk into a gas station and you're like, and you seek out that coffee without being actually tired, you're a crazy person, because that coffee is four days old. It's been That's sitting not there. That's true. If anything, it's, tur- it's turned over extremely quickly. Oh no! Oh, None no. of what you just said is true. That oh, was no. all. That was all. No, no, Tuesday no. morning. No, you go into the. You go into your local. You go into your local mobile on the on Halstead over here in Chicago. That coffee is sitting there for days. Well, it does depend on which gas station. So you can't just generalize to all gas stations. But well, if I'm, if I would I'm agree. On in Chicago, oh yeah, I would agree. In Chicago, there's no reason to get from an actual gas station. There's so many other places to get coffee. Now, if I'm driving up 294 going to Wisconsin, you stop at a truck stop. That coffee's turning over every 30 seconds. Exactly. That's what I'm talking fresh, about. Okay. Fresh so coffee the, in the country. We're on the same page. We can remain friends. 
Um, so if you're just joining us today, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about velocity and its importance, both from the hitting standpoint and the pitching standpoint. I think this is an interesting conversation. This is actually I'm actually working on a, a new book. I have like two in the works, but I really like outline and I'm like starting to allocate time to my new one, which is going to be about pitching strategy and basically how to get swings and misses. So I was working on my, on the, like the velocity chapter, it's important, that kind of stuff. So it's kind of front of mind. So I'd like to talk about that a little bit today. We're also going to talk about, uh, what are we going to talk about, Bobby? Um, we are going to talk a little bit about, uh, well, I know Dan wants to hit on it, the Donald Trump golfing tweet. And I also want to touch on that Tiger Woods, uh, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning whole shtick with that over the weekend. I don't know if you caught any of that, Dan. I assume I didn't. You, I, assume I don't care. Didn't. I know Tom Brady split his pants, but let's just get that out of the way now because that'll be like a one minute talking All right. point. Go what for it. Well, I so the Donald Trump. Uh, you you lead into the Donald Trump because I actually didn't read the tweet personally, but I will comment uh, on it because I do love to. Well, I just want to. I just want to again see how you're gonna go and defend him, but he was golfing this weekend, which. I don't have a, a massive problem with, but when he was confronted about it, he immediately criticized Obama and his golfing habits and brought up how Obama was golfing like two days after a journalist got beheaded, um, blah, blah, blah. So, Which I don't think is a relevant point. I mean, that's irrelevant, right? That he was golfing. It wasn't like his brother got beheaded. It's just, I mean, everything as a president essentially reflects on you, right? So, like, if, if there's any kind of death that's notable in the news, should the president mourn? Like, is there an acceptable time for the president not to do anything? I don't think that is relevant. Yeah. Like he should I, be allowed to go, like, the golf, the whole golf thing, where I fall in the golf thing is I just don't care enough. Like, I think that whether it's Obama or Trump, like, golfing, it's whatever. They they're allowed to have leisure activity. I don't think that uh, they need to be locked in the white house 24 seven. I also don't have an issue with either one of them golfing in any amount uh, you know, if golf is the only thing that Trump likes to do and he wants to golf, go for it. If Obama was split his time between golfing and playing tennis or basketball, I know he's a big pickup basketball player. Fantastic. Like you have the most stressful job in the world. You should be allowed to have, some kind of, I don't know, leisure activity. I don't care all that much. Obviously, I'm sure his words struck a chord with, with everybody, which is fine. Like you're going to take an issue with how he how he approached like the response to the question. No big deal. But I don't have an issue with anybody taking a uh, issue with how he responded, or you know, I I would prefer he not. I'm going to cut you off. So Obama. he he yeah he. Well, his, uh, Trump's tweets got brought back up, which were he tweeted back in like 2014, criticizing Obama's golfing, saying that, you know, if I was president, basically, like, I would be smart enough to know that, like, basically for like, you know, those four years, I'm just like not going to play golf. Like, there's more important things to be doing. That's what he literally that's like his tweet from the past. <laughs> and here he is getting called out on it because he golfs way more than Obama did. And then he criticized Obama's golfing. And anyway, that's that's. This is not I, yeah. like a, there's I not mean, a whole I, lot. I just, I just don't care enough. Like, 
He's I just, think whether you know whether it's golf or whether he was he's fishing or like George Bush used to go to his ranch in Texas. Like they, oh fine. They, it's not like they're. It's not like they should not be allowed to do things. They should be. You know, I don't. I agree with you that he doesn't need to invoke Obama in every like. You know, once he gets criticized, he doesn't need to bring up the criticism of Obama in like a similar fashion. Well, whether that's what it does, yeah. Whether it's that's strategic, MO. yeah. Like whether it's like in his mind, strategic or not, you know, whatever. It feels petty sometimes, especially with like the golf. Like who cares? Very rational opinion from you. I'm proud of you today. Maybe it's because you have the blue shirt. My maybe I'm like my vibes rubbing off. But good job. Dan and I good, are matching. Good commentary this morning. Thank you. Very very on both sides of this. Um, very minor, unimportant topic. I'm just, um, I'm just angling for a, for a, a chapter in your next book, Dan. I gotta, you, I gotta. You, you don't belong. You don't belong. Come on, we're talking velocity. Yeah. So, uh, I saw some random tweets this morning, um, like people like going back and forth about 80 miles per hour with command is like better than 95, which is laughable. And it's like, <laughs> why, why is everyone even, anyone even talking about that? Okay, so uh, I have the tweet. Would you like me to read it? Sure. It's uh, it was a coach, or it was a first originally tweeted by a former minor league guy. He says, "If you've never faced a pitcher throwing 95 plus, you really don't know how hard hitting actually is." And a coach from where is he? He's a head basketball coach at a math and science academy. Yeah. He so tweets, no relevant experience. No yeah. relevant. He tweets back, "I'd much rather face 95 plus, but throw straight than a low 80s." guy that changes speeds and hits spots with movement um <laughs> which you know which is okay like i would prefer personally to face the low 80s guy that has changes speeds <laughs> with movement but maybe I, my opinion is stupid um why I is your opinion see, stupid i well because uh, apparently this guy just the basketball coach knows all um, in no in no walk of life. Would you ever rather face 95 over 82? I don't care. I don't care if the ball's moving 16 feet. You just wouldn't 95 invokes that fear factor and 82 miles an hour is a low level high school pitcher. You in no walk of life want to not face. a low, not a, not a low level high school pitcher. No, mm, you know, better, you know better than that. Okay. He's an average high school pitcher, average high school pitcher. Depending on the part of the country, yeah, right. But where, Dan? You, have you been in the box against ninety-five miles an hour? Uh, ninety-two, and it was it was tough to track with my eyes. The difference between eighty-nine and ninety-two with my eye tracking was significant. Um, because my second year in pro ball, we played in this stupid National League rules league, which was like, why? Why are we doing this? Where? And uh, it's called the North American League. It existed for only one half summer, and it, the whole thing collapsed. Uh, but 89-ish was manageable for me, having not seen pitching since high school. Like, yeah. You know, the last time I saw a, a fastball was like 75 in high school. So getting those couple of bats, 89 was like my eyes could track it in. And this is me being still like a lifelong baseball player who plays catch, who's like used to tracking thrown objects all day. And... um but then when I faced a guy throwing, he was throwing like 90 to 92. I think this was a reliever. Uh, there was just a significant difference in how blurry the ball was. Like I, I really had to start a little earlier and I just felt like my eyes didn't properly track the ball the way they did 
at 89. And so then that next three miles per hour jump, I know, especially for, I mean, everyone remarks the same thing that 94 and above hitters start to be uncomfortable because they, it's tougher to get out of the way. They have to make decisions a lot faster and the ball just physically is harder to track with your eyes. Is that your experience? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's obviously like the more you see it, the easier it becomes, but yeah, for definitely, sure. definitely as you know, as somebody, if you're never, if you don't see 90 plus miles an hour and then all of a sudden you step in a batter's box or machine or play catch with somebody that's throwing that hard. I mean, it catches you by surprise. It's a definite, that's what always frustrates me about when you tear parents and people like your old friends are like, Oh, how, you know, I used to be good in, in high school. I threw about 90. Like, no, you did not throw 90. Like, you know, when you see 90 miles an hour or let alone 95 miles an hour, it is just a it's different, fast. it's a different sight. Like, watching that ball move. I mean, I, you know, our hardest throwing youth guy right now is he's touched 90, maybe twice, but he sits like 87, 89 and the ball jumping out of his hand is significantly harder than the kid throwing 82, 83. I mean, it's a significant jump. And I know just from experience that it's really not that hard, like in the baseball world, you know, that's 87, 89 is a that's an, probably a weekend starter for a division one school, which is awesome, but it's not, you know, he's not blowing people away in no, he's college. Got a, he's got a, lo- he's got a locator. He gets pounded. Right. And, but watching him throw or play catch with guys, it's like he invokes a lot of fear with 99% of the people he plays catch with. And he's really got just an above average high school arm, not necessarily like a top level, you know, worldwide arm. So 95, I mean, you, you really don't understand just the just the the amount of time it takes to adjust for your eyes when it's coming at you that hard, let alone trying to maybe get out of the way if the guy's got a little bit of a control issue. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, I think there's a bunch that I want to cover in this, but the other thing that he mentioned was 95 and straight. People seem to have this idea that it being straight makes it like easy. I had a very straight fastball. I'm one example. I was like a high spin rate pitcher. My fastball was very straight. It was not easy to hit. I mean, I threw lots and lots and lots of fastballs, and hitters had a tough time getting the barrel to them and catching up to them, and they'd miss a lot because, yeah, it was straight, but it had good high spin, and they'd miss underneath it. So anything above the belt, like I just owned. They couldn't get the barrel to it well. So this idea of like straightness being easy – like, sure, lateral movement is tough. I mean, you throw a cutter, it, like, ruins people's days. Cutters are really hard to throw. Yep. You throw a really good sinker that just can, like, you can just mow through a team as well. But most guys don't throw really good sinkers. Most guys throw pretty junky two-seamers. Like, the amount of guys that have a very legit sinking fastball, is it's a small percentage of people. I mean, you just don't see it that often. So guys have, like, a two-seamer that'll run a little bit, you know, and they'll, they'll get – a guy to roll over a ball because when he commits a swing, it ends up on the, on the black of the plate instead of the outer third. And if it was on the outer third, maybe he barrels it up, you know, hits it the opposite way through the hole. But people still take for granted. They think like throwing a two seamer makes you like safe and like get outs. And I have a video of this on my YouTube, which I'd recommend you checking out if, uh, if you're out there listening, but two seamers are wrong for most players. Cause if you throw a two seamer, that's not good. That's not like a legit sinker. It it's not a good pitch. It just isn't. You don't locate as well. It doesn't have any like, doesn't have any of that life to it that four seamers do. So for most youth pitchers, the four seamer is the better pitch to go with, unless they can really 
devote time and practice and figure it out. So like, all right, this actually has like a little bit of a wrinkle, a little bit of a sink to it. How do you feel about that? Yeah. I mean, I'm all for movement. Movement is definitely tough. That's why that's what makes off speed pitches so difficult to handle as a hitter. But if you're th- if you've got the velocity, that upper end velocity where you're 94, 95, 96, I mean, to if you locate that pitch, I don't care if it's straight as an arrow, like that is not an easy yeah, pitch. It doesn't to matter. Up. It does not matter. Yeah. Especially with like you're talking about with the high spin rate. So as a hitter, that ball feels like it's rising on you because it it never dips and never stays like on a down plane. It kind of levels out almost just from your eye perception. So you know, they seem you like get, they speed up too. They definitely seem like they speed up, especially a ball up, you know, above the belt where it feels like it gets on you. Um, a lot of things I tell hitters is, you know, the closer the ball is to your eyes, the earlier you have to react. So the pitch up and in, you've got to react a lot earlier than the pitch down and away. So now you've got a guy that's consistently throwing, you know, upper mid to upper seven or nineties, mid to upper seventies would be, would be a little more manageable, but mid to upper nineties, and that ball is getting on you. So you're, you're in your head and like your reaction time with your body is just shortened by that much more. Whereas you get a guy like Greg Maddox later in his career where, yes, he's locating that that ball moving, you know, eight to ten inches. But at the same time, like the confidence you have to at least maybe see that pitch a little bit longer. Uh, it, it's just a more comfortable at bat, it's, you know, in my opinion. And yeah. not that I want to face Greg Maddox, you know, ever because he's going to carve me up but i still have more confidence i'm going to see that pitch as opposed to randy johnson where even if he misses a spot like i have to react so quickly it just it's such an uncomfortable position to be in that you have to be perfect timing wise yeah so two points to that and so one thing that i was uh working on this weekend was trying to quantify what good pitching is so if you're going to write a book about this is like I'm going to teach you about how to pitch good, how to pitch good. Uh, so like, what is good pitching? And like, so the old adage is hitting is timing, pitching is disrupting timing, which is it's an inadequate description of that. Like it's an, an inadequate description of pitching. Pitching is much more than disrupting timing, right? Um, you could somehow, if you really wanted to like do this, like say, Oh, everything comes down to time, like a slider, just like you're not on time with it. That's, that's really nonsense. Um, timing is really like, changing speeds going in and out up and down those things affect a hitter's timing but they also affect a hitter's barrel accuracy right like you don't you have to actually adjust your swing and get your barrel the ball if it's on the outer third versus the inner third like it's not an easy thing to do and when that pitch is 96 and you're not sure where it's going to be you not only have to like recognize okay i need a swing and like oh i need to swing on the outer corner and like get my barrel all the way over there that's a big task. Like, it's not like 96, just like right down the middle where you just like, okay, swing now. Like I started on it. Like hitting is hard. Like you have to adjust. Um, so this idea of like, what is good pitching and what, uh, like, how do we get outs? It's complex. And so this whole disrupting timing thing, it doesn't work the same if you're throwing 76 and then you take 10 miles per hour off and it's now 66. The difference between 76 and 66 and 96 versus an 86 mile per hour off speed pitch is it's enormous. Like they're not even comparable. So to say like changing speeds is important. It's sure it's important, but the the difficulty of hitting a pitcher who's changing speeds again at a high speed versus a low speed is vastly 
different because the reaction time is so much shorter and your eyes have to track it so much faster and the breaking pitches become so much different. I mean, a breaking pitch at 66, it physically can't behave the same way as a breaking pitch at 86. That's why it's like now commonly known that you should throw every, and this has always been pretty much known, but back in the day, it was okay to have like a loopier curveball, like take a little off your curveball. You saw more like Ted Lilly, you know, Barry Zito hooks, more like you know, the Rich Hill curveball. You don't see as many of those anymore today because it's pretty well known that if I throw my if I can throw my curveball 80 off 95, I should rather than throwing yeah. it softer because it flies down the same path as the fastball longer. And thus, when it breaks, because all, all breaking balls break gradually, none of them actually have sharp break. It looks ja- more jagged because it was flying down that same path before it diverged later on. So the harder you can throw your breaking pitches, the less the more they're concealed to look like a fastball longer, which again, that seems like obvious wisdom, but it kind of isn't. But again, you start thinking of trajectories. If if your curveball has if it's slower, it has to kind of go up before it comes back down to be in the strike zone. Whereas if you can throw it really, really hard and you have the velocity to throw it really, really hard, you can kind of force it straighter longer. I mean, how hard is it to hit like a upper seventies curveball? Well, you know, I good at I faced Rich Hill. So like what you're talking about, Rich Hill's got that big curveball and you watch Rich Hill's curveball on TV and you, and you know, the average fans probably thinking like, Oh, how do you not adjust to that? Well, when you're in the box against Rich Hill's curveball, that thing is coming at you hard. Like you just, he just, it's almost an illusion because he's so big and how high he releases it. Like he's throwing, it's almost like he's throwing over a wall when he throws his curveball. But when that thing is coming at you, I mean, it feels like it's breaking straight to the ground. I don't know how yeah. anybody hits it. It's a, it's like a, I don't want to say it's an unhittable pitch because obviously people have hit it, but it's not something, it's something you almost want to lay off of and hope that it's a ball because there's really like the, the way you'd have to get behind that baseball to try and square it up makes it virtually unhittable. And it's, yeah. Well, it really teammate. feels hard. Like it feels like a very hard curveball, like just velocity wise, because it it's like it hits. It's like a cartoon. It hits one point where it's about to come down and then boom, shoots straight down, at least from your hitting perspective. Yeah. And that's what, so he pitched against my team, Camden, the year he got signed. We were the last team he pitched against. We said we, we helped him get to the big leagues. He punched out like <laughs> 12 batters in five innings or something or 10 and 12 or 10 and four innings. It was either 10 and four innings or 12 and five, either way. And guys were like, I know it's a curveball. They're like, I can see it, but then it just like keeps coming. And then it just goes zoom. And just, they're like, I know it's a curveball. I still am struggling to lay off it. And when I do swing at it, I just like can't track its break very well. Like it was that tight and, and late, late breaking quote unquote, which again, late breaking is kind of a miss. It's not a misnomer. Like this is one thing that I, I, I dislike about, baseball is like we have to explain ourselves the term late breaking curveball or slider still applies in all the practical sense like as a hitter better sliders and curveballs they appear to break later and sharper more suddenly right Mm -hmm. bad ones they have this soft curve that like happens gradually Um, in reality all breaking balls are breaking gradually there's no sharpness in any curveball even the world's best one or slider but again, the reason they appear jagged is it's, a, it's sort of an optical illusion because they're going straight for so long. And then the difference between where they, the ball was and then where it now is, it appears jagged in your eyes because it happens, it happens quickly off of that familiar like fastball-like trajectory. 
And so I, I feel like sometimes, you know, people are going to like jump with, oh, curveballs don't, they don't actually break late. Uh, uh, you don't know what you're talking about. It's like, yeah, I do. It's just like, it doesn't, it doesn't benefit anyone to talk about it the other like, way. But the physics of it doesn't match up to the actual, like the real life. Yeah. Like what a curveball looks like from the batter's box doesn't quite reflect what happens in the physics and that's okay. Like that's fine. Right. Yeah. You yeah. can explain stuff like, Oh, you're going to have, you know, you should be able to react to these curveballs at, you know, a 76 to 86 because you're going to, re- you're going to recognize it at point point one five, and you're going to have all this time to react to it. Oh, when in reality, it's like your, your body is feeling so many different things. And then all of a sudden you get rich Hill who's six, five throws the ball. looks like it's 10 feet in the air and it ends up at your knees uh, and it looks on TV like it's coming in at 60, but it's really coming in at 78. And it's a, it's a hammer curveball, quote unquote. Yeah. Well, and so back to velocity, the thing, you don't see this in the major leagues much. You only see it with a couple of guys. And you don't really see this with, I don't feel like Jordan Hicks, but you see it with guys like Aroldis Chapman, who's got longer arms, he's taller. I think he probably hides the ball a little better than Jordan Hicks does. Because the thing with velocity is, like, and Nathan Avaldi was a good example of this, where, and I think he had a resurgence when he joined the Red Sox. But prior to the Red Sox, Nathan Avaldi like consistently pitched at like ninety nine. Like he was like one of the hardest throwers. But he like couldn't get anyone to swing and miss. He had like five strikeouts per nine innings. And you're like, what the? How in God's name does that make sense? You throw ninety seven, ninety eight all the time, and no one, you can't strike anybody out. Yeah. And Jordan Hicks was kind of the same way. Obviously, he can punch out more guys than Ovaldi, but for as hard as Hicks throws, his strikeout numbers aren't quite proportional, I would say. Like, they're not nearly as high as they you'd think they would be. And then you talk about some guys like David Robertson or some of these guys that throw more in the low to mid-90s who have really high strikeout rates. You're like, wow, if he threw 100, he would strike out literally every hitter ever, right? So it's funny how velocity matters, but also... There are still guys that are really hard who aren't good at getting guys to swing and miss. And sometimes it's the quality of their fastball. Like they don't have the high spin rate. That's usually one of the qualities. So I had a teammate who threw about the same as me, maybe a little harder, but he just like couldn't strike people out. He People wouldn't miss his fastball, even if it was 95, 96. They, they just, it, it was like a light fastball. Right. Um, and so, but like back to my point about Chapman, I, in the, at the big league level, you never see major leaguers take, confused swings more than I feel like they do off Chapman and Randy Johnson. I was watching some Randy Johnson highlights the other day for a new video project I'm doing. Um, But it's clear with Chapman that they just don't pick up the ball. Well, it's so fast and it's released so close to them because he's so long legged and he can get such good extension that they have to make frantic, basically frantic swinging decisions, right? Like they have to decide to swing so much earlier on Chapman that they end up taking a cut on a ball that's like nowhere close. It's like, dude, what were you doing taking a swing at that pitch that was like up and away six inches off the plate? Like that's a pitch that no big leader ever swings at. And you swung at that and you missed it by like 10 inches. When you start to see stuff like that as a parent or a coach, you should know Like if you're watching your kids later in the summer and they're facing a hard throw and you see your kid just take it like a, a cut at a pitch that's like, what the F were you doing? It's because they become overmatched and they start to really like have to make frantic fast decisions and and choose to swing earlier and now they just like have very little chance of of of, of making of getting their barrel to where the ball's going to end up is that your experience yeah so the you know a good example i feel like is i faced craig kimbrell who's 
arguably, you know, <laughs> yeah, one good, of the, good luck good, with that. Good luck, but you know, very hard thrower, but he was, he's five eleven. you know, he's, he's a average size guy where, uh, you know, but he's throwing in the upper nineties, you know, 97, 98, 99, but I faced, um, just a, he's didn't ever made it to the big leagues, but I faced a guy who was six, eight and just, just the the perception of the ball coming out of the guy that was six eight is so much more of like a yeah uh, you know I don't want to say a panic but it was like a panic because it it felt like his ball was just on top of you immediately and he wasn't throwing that hard I mean he was probably in the low nineties like ninety ninety two and mm-hmm. you've got so you've got a guy throwing ninety eight ninety nine in Kimbrel who's six foot let's call him six foot tall and it's a Granted, he's got better stuff. He's just a better pitcher. Obviously, his career has dictated that. But his hit in the box, it was much more comfortable than the guy who was throwing ninety ninety two, but he's six eight, and mm-hmm. that's it. And that comes and that's I. I'm confident if you had if every guy was six eight, it wouldn't feel that way. But when you've got a guy like that who all of a sudden his release point is two feet closer to home plate, and you're picking up the ball and you feel like you have less time even though the ball is getting there probably slower than the average size righty. It's just the perception of it. It just throws you off. And that's, it kind of goes along with like you, the sidewinder guys or the submarine guys where you never see those guys. And all of a sudden you bring them in for three batters and they're so effective and they're so like, there's such a mix up on what you normally see and they're, and that's why they have value. You know, that big tall guy has a lot of value um, someone like a Roldis Chapman, whose arms feel like they're they can reach all the way to home plate. You know that that guy, uh, aside from throwing 104, is super uncomfortable. Even if he was throwing 84, because it looks like he's placing the ball right into the catcher's glove, and it's really difficult to account for those outliers, those you know those outlier pitchers that do something unorthodox. Whereas a yeah. professional, you're expecting to see the orthodox for well, the majority you're... of the time. Yeah, and that's a good point that where you said if everyone was six eight, it wouldn't feel that way, which is which is true, because basically your brain and the physics it does it, it adapts to whatever like the common physics is, and most players are in the bell curve, right? Like, so I was an example where my fastball was not in the bell curve. So even though I'm average size dude, I'm six foot, my ninety one to ninety four today seems slower than ever, but back then it was a little harder than it is like now because velocities keep rising. Um, but and like I had above average extension, like I had a long stride, I could like kind of get out there. I was very similar, like I would say, like David Robertson, where long extension, whatever. So even though I didn't throw premium speeds like mid to upper 90s, my fastball confused hitters because mine they're like, okay, this is a typical 92 mile per hour fastball, but it's like it rises a little bit, it gets on them a little bit. I like reach out and it's releasing closer to home plate. And so their brain doesn't really account for that. Like you said, when you're just then 6'8", it's like, all right, this is still 90. Why is it so hard? Well, it's because your brain's not accounting for the, the steeper downhill release trajectory and the fact that it's released closer to home plate. And so as a pitcher, one of your – you can't really – you can't do a whole lot about this, but being farther on one side of the bell curve to all these different qualities, whether it's velocity, extension, height, arm angle, um, you know, spin rate, those are all things that put you outside of the realm where they their little brain computer just doesn't process it and they just make errors. That was the thing with me. 
I would throw a ball. They would pop it up. They're like, I should hit that ball hard. Like, why did I hit that ball hard? They fly off the center field. It's just like, because my ball stays up because it's got high spin and they think they got it because on another guy, on an average guy, they do get it. But with me, they miss a little bit low because my fastball spins more than normal. And they couldn't really account for that in their brain. That's why like all the unique qualities of pitchers, that, that's how they, they kind of work. And so, yeah, I had a teammate in Evansville my second or third year, and he was like six foot nine, had a really short stride. So the ball was just like screaming down from the heavens. And he was like 87, 88. And guys just like swing, they swung and missed at like balls that were in the dirt because it was like screaming downhill. And yeah. the swings they took were really weird. And you could just tell that it was because of his, the, the trajectory that he threw at. And it was, it was interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, you could you could take a guy like Tim Lincecum, who's, uh, for all accounts, a a smaller statured pitcher, you know, thin guy, but he's, I mean, he's literally jumping at you. Like it feels like he's yeah. jumping at you while also having, you know, pretty premium velocity. So, you know, whether or not you adjust that over the course of your two or three at bats that you're going to get against him, you know, by that time he's mowed through the lineup, you know, through six innings. So. It, to the adjustment period on something that's a little unorthodox, you know, we want to put all the youth players and everybody in like this box of perfect. These are premium mechanics and these are, you know, don't have any stylistic, you know, differences between you and whoever you're, whoever's teaching you. I mean, that's what makes some of these guys really good, you know, for as mechanically sound as maybe Verlander is, you got a guy that like Lincecum that just comes out of nowhere and, everything he's doing is throwing off everything you are accustomed to as a hitter and he's, and he's successful for a long period of time. You know, I don't know if that's sustainable to teach somebody to teach pitch like that, but you did that those, those stylistic differences, you know, yeah, not really getting out of his body is it's not an easy at bat. Like it's very difficult to, to adjust to, especially if you're only getting one at bat off of him, like a bullpen guy. Yeah. And and so I think this is where I think parents and, and players get frustrated where they're like, you can't compare Greg Maddox to anyone else. Like, cause again, Greg Maddox, really what you have to compare is say, all right, we have a sample size of a hundred average division one righties who all throw 95 to 96. There's a hundred of them. And they're all going to have average division one command for the most part, right? They're going to miss a lot. They're going to be, you know, whatever. Um, and we're going to compare that group and their success, the success they have to 100 Division One pitchers who throw 80 to 82. Not we're going to compare them. Now we're going to compare an average righty who throws 95 to a world-class righty who throws 82, like Jamie Moyer, who's a lefty, or Greg Maddox. Like, you can't compare those two groups and have a, any sort of relevant discussion. No. If you're going to compare some of the best command pitchers in the world, like a Greg Maddox, you need to compare him, you know, Who's a Greg Maddox who throws 96? You know, uh, I don't know. Is that Max Scherzer? I mean, he's I got really, pretty – I mean, it was maybe Clayton Kershaw back in his day. He had pretty much the best command in the, in the big leagues. I don't know who has the best command and the combination of stuff, but it's probably like a Verlander slash Scherzer slash, you know, I don't know. But – and even then, it's hard to know because they don't have to be as good as Greg Maddox did because their stuff is so good. Like Scherzer throws 96 all the time with a nasty slider, nasty changeup, like it's hard to compare apples to apples. But if you had Greg Maddox and you just gave him 12 miles per hour, like for Christmas, he would own the entire world. Yeah. And so you, 
but then the problem is most pitchers that throw 80 82 aren't that good at hitting their spots or mixing it up or whatever and so you end up comparing this high school kid who's got really great command who throws 80 against this high school kid who throws 90 with not great command and you start trying to like compare those two groups and they're just not comparable and then the harder thrower is usually going to win out because hitters are just so uncomfortable and have to make such bad decisions because of the sheer velocity. Because 90 in high school is like 100 in the big leagues. 90 in high school is so fast. You never right. see that. And hitters, their eyes aren't adapted to it. And even a crappy curveball slider at a guy who's throwing 90, now they're seeing 81 mile per hour slider. They're seeing a slider that's the average fastball at their, eight, at their, at their right? That's the same thing in the big leagues. If you throw 100, your slider is a big league average speed for a fastball essentially right. like 91 92 93 so that's why that that, that command debate versus velocities is stupid because we don't really have comparable people and again like if you took any successful pitcher at a lower than premium velocity and gave him five miles per hour more and nothing changes he would just own the freaking world and, well, then, and that's yeah. what a lot of us say. It's like, man, how does that guy not get out? How does that guy not, like, back to, like, Nathan Ovaldi? How do you not punch out the world when you sit at 97? And it's because their command's not that good. They're getting away with the stuff because they do throw that hard. Where, you know, we both have lots of teammates who are, like, that good dude can just go through seven innings, one run, you know, four hits all day. If he threw 99, he'd strike out 17 batters and be the best pitcher in America. Yeah, the, the Maddox one is like, not only is it the outlier because he's one of the greatest pitchers of all time, but it's he didn't just he didn't just ascend to the big leagues throwing eighty two to eighty four. No, like he, and he ascended, have. Yeah. and he was he was in the big he was on the Cubs in his earlier years running it up to ninety five. I mean, yeah. he had a good arm. He just took his intellect and decided, okay, well, if I take a little bit off here, but I hit the spot every time. I'm going to get way more outs and I'm going to become a better pitcher. Like what people don't look at is his later years, like with the Dodgers, like his last couple of years in the big leagues, if he didn't have that command, he was getting absolutely shellacked. Like if For he sure. wasn't hitting perfect spots and he even says it like in interviews, I mean, his ERA was noticeably higher at the end of his career, not because he was like any less of a, a velocity pitcher because he threw at 82 to 84, but because he wasn't hitting as many spots. So you, you're talking about, I mean, maybe he missed an extra five spots based, you know, based on earlier in his career, those five balls are getting absolutely hammered. And that's yeah. the difference. In two, the big two more doubles. Yeah. Right. Whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, the, you can't use him as a, well, my son throws 84, 85. So he could be like Greg Maddox. No, mm -mm. no, no, he cannot. Never. He's never, not like Greg never Maddox. Could. Never could. Yeah. If you want him to be like Greg Maddox, like you need to, you need to start working a little bit differently because this guy's hitting tea cups from, you know, 70 yards out. I mean, he is putting it wherever he wants. Well, and it's also not just the command. It's that Greg Maddox had 15 years in the big leagues, understanding how to get big, big leaguers out. And his stuff slowly declined over that period of time, but his knowledge increased to compensate his ability to read hitters and just to understand how to pitch to that level without that 15 years of prep or 10 years or 12 years of prep for when he didn't throw as hard, there's no way he would have been successful. Like you said, you can't just go to the big leagues now throwing 84 to 86 and expect to have any kind of success because you don't know how to get those guys out at any speed yet. Right. You don't have the experience. I mean, you saw like guys like Jake Arrieta got destroyed. He was like the, literally the worst pitcher in baseball 
with qualifying innings his like first three years before he got traded the Cubs. And he had like, like from all reports and you played, you're in the same system as him. Everyone says that he had like the nastiest stuff you'd ever seen smelled or tasted whatever. Like he was just like the filthiest dude and he still couldn't get people out because he just didn't know how to pitch the big league level yet. And he was all like, I know the Orioles kind of screwed with his mechanics and like, it was like a whole big thing in his head too. But again, like, and even like another good example is, um, Who's the Braves pitcher? He was a Louisiana State pitcher. Kevin Gossman. Um, Kevin Gossman, Gossman has yeah. like the also like the filthiest stuff, like ninety-eight mile per hour turbo sinkers. Also former crazy curveball. Yeah, they're great at letting go of amazing okay. talent. Well, so so like you're you're so there's a you're identifying a lot of talent as an organization. Like you've got guys who've got very high high ceilings as far as talent and you know arm talent as pitchers. And you gotta you have arm talent. You have to have, but arm you talent. can't get him over the hump. Like Jake Arrieta, for the longest time, was he went from opening day starter back to AAA in the same year. And you know, yeah, being in, I was never, I was never at the same. Uh, he was always you ahead you, of me. You weren't cool enough to be his friend. Just he, I don't know if he, I don't know who he was friends with the Orioles. Honestly, he was very uh, kept to himself. But you're talking about a guy who's who's got the four pitches he throws are the four best graded out pitches in the whole organization. He's got the best fastball. He's got the best slider. He's got the best curveball, best changeup. And he can't put it together as a pitcher on the mound because he's, he's missing spots. I mean, I, I, you always want to face a guy who, you know, can only throw one pitch for a strike. And granted he may throw a curveball once in a while for a strike and screw you. But if you're averaging that out over nine hitters in the lineup, you know, seven of those guys are going to get only fastballs for strikes and they're going to square some of those up. Like you're just going to get hit mm-hmm. around. And that's what happened with Jake Arrieta. Then he comes to the Cubs and whatever happens, maybe it was confidence. Maybe it was the pitching coach, you know, letting him do his own thing. But this guy became all world greatest pitcher in, you know, a century stat wise, just from, you know, finding lightning in a bottle. And he hasn't replicated that since. So to, to talk about Greg Maddox, who had a career of, just premier excellence. It, you show, you see how see how hard that actually is. Yeah. So if you're just joining us, uh, we're talking about velocity, both from the hitting standpoint and pitching standpoint. Kind of comparing this old stupid argument about is command and lower velocity better than high velocity? And like obviously, like neither of them. Again, when you throw, and this is what you see all the time with these like high school draft picks. You see like these high school kids get drafted; they're 96, 98, whatever. And they go into their first year pro ball and they put up like a 10 ERA. And it's because they're 2-0 to everybody, right? They throw as hard as they can. In high school, that works because hitters just have to swing so early because they're overmatched by the velocity. So they just have to like just get it going and hope their bat's through the zone when the that speeding bullet goes through the zone. Yep. But then in pro ball, that's not that way. So they're just like, oh, ball one, ball two, okay, 99, I'm ready. And then they just tank it. And so that's still the thing with like, you know, when, it's kind of like when you don't throw as hard, you have to work really hard to like read hitters and hit your spots, right? So we know that. So that will play at the next level. So if you get a chance, you know how to pitch already kind of. Whereas this problem with high-velocity guys then struggling at the next level where then people are pointing out like, oh, velocity doesn't is not the only thing that matters, which is true. But the problem is that when you throw 95 in high school – you there's no reason you always pitch to like sort of like the lowest common denominator if you throw 95 in high school all you really have to do is just like lock eyes on the middle of the plate and just hammer that 
thing in there. Right. And you're gonna and you're gonna miss spots. You're still gonna throw strikes because you got some margin for error. But you absolutely don't have to throw it on the black when you throw 95 in high school. You just don't, and so you don't learn that skill because you just don't have to do that to be successful. And it's still the same thing with every pitcher at every level. You end up playing to your strength. So like a Max Scherzer does not have to be as fine as a Dallas Keuchel because he throws 96 and his slider is so filthy. He does not have to locate as perfectly as that as Keuchel does, right? And so a high school pitcher throws 95, he's not going to learn the skill of like locating and getting ahead in the count as much because it's not as it's not imperative for him to do his job. And then when he gets to pro ball, he gets roughed up and then he says, okay, I got to get ahead on the first pitch. And then I got to go to the halves of the plate and still try to throw a strike. Like you got to start to, you adjust to it, but until it doesn't work it, until it's until it stops working, you stick with it. And that's one of the things like you saw, I'm sure you've seen lots of pitchers struggle over your days where guys are just like, suddenly they just like can't get outs. And this was how my career ended. Um, when your stuff declines, it's can be re- if it's not a slow decline like Greg Maddox, like he just was age, just aging. Like my last season, my shoulder was messed up, like real messed up. People didn't really know I was kind of keeping it to myself, but like I still threw ninety to ninety two, which is only like a little tick below normal. But my fastball wasn't spinning the same way, and so I'd go out there still throw strikes, still essentially pitch my same game. But now instead of hitters like missing a fastball that they previously would have missed when I was healthy, they barrel it up. And now I don't get away with stuff that I used to get away with. And so you pitch like that and you're like, huh, I feel like I threw well tonight, but I gave up three singles or two singles and a double. And the next time you're like, huh, I feel like I pitched well tonight, but I didn't get good results. And it's hard to figure out when to like abandon ship kind of and like start to change who you are because when you're 30 years old you don't just have like a bad two weeks and be like i gotta change everything i start i I start throwing a new pitch i start throwing sinkers like you you dance with who brung you you like stick with what you're good at but it's hard to know when stuff has actually changed like for example the high school pitcher who goes into into, in a pro ball he gets roughed up a few times he's like okay like when do you have to say okay now i have to actually change i have to change to be successful and it's hard to exactly know when that when that happens, and yeah, it's it's tough. That's why it's hard sometimes. In, in the big leagues, there's very little tolerance for that. So if you go up to the major leagues, you're trying to get your footing and like adjust to the level and figure it out. But then you maybe only get a chance or two, and then back to the minors or whatever. Yeah, and with youth pitchers too. Just the last thing to touch on is they're really not allowed to develop velocity over the like as a gradual thing like you're it's almost the emphasis is you need to jump up velocity velocity. to get them well you need to you like velocity needs to be is the only goal right everything's focused on velocity like you can't pitch at a level without velocity so you're constantly working at it like the weighted ball stuff the the strength stuff the long toss and you really negate just the pitching like the actual pitching and the and understanding of pitching and learning it um whereas if kids were allowed to just develop naturally like and they didn't have to be throwing 88 at 14 15 years old to be noticed that you'd see a lot i think you would see a lot more pitchers um that just that all of a sudden when their velocity catches up to their pitching acumen they become very very good and they're ready for that next level acumen like 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 the word acumen i was reading my dictionary this weekend well that's and that's a good point i'm glad you brought that up basically the way i sort of explain it is like your brain as a young ball player is like a computer 
that isn't fixed, like the hardware. Like you can upgrade the hardware over time. You can add more memory. You can swap out the processor for a faster one. But you only have so much processing power. So like if you have a computer at home, which I'm sure most of you are listening to this on a computer, you know that if you open up, you know, Adobe video editing or Adobe this and you have like five browser windows and you're streaming Netflix, your computer starts to slow down, right? It can't do all those tasks at once. Right. And as a young athlete, you might only have the processing power essentially to, to, to do like, I can, I can try to throw strikes and maybe I can like back up third base after they hit a ball. Like I know a bunch of the tasks, but there's a laundry list of things you have to do as a pitcher. I have to know everywhere I'm going on a batted ball. I got to know where I'm going to throw it. I got to know who's coming up, what pitch I'm throwing, who's up next, what I'm good at, what I'm not good at, all these different, there's like a huge laundry list of stuff. And when you're a pro and you've been doing it for a long time, all those decisions are made like almost instantaneously because you have tons of memory and RAM and hard drive space and a really fast processor because you've done it so long. All these decisions are quick and easy. They require very little effort. But for young players, like you, you know, Bobby and I, I'm sure you're doing the same as me. You're like, you have to beat into their head to hold freaking runners. It's like, dude, you can't forget about the runners every time and let them just steal second base. But this is because their brain is completely maxed out on processing power with everything else. They're trying to throw strike. They're trying to throw hard. They're trying to, you know, they're worried about all this other stuff that's going on and they start to pinwheel because they just don't have enough memory left over to, to worry about the runner on first base. Yeah. Again, it's when just, you get older, that becomes automatic. It's like, I know I'm going to hold, I'm going to hold, can't let him steal, can't let him steal, still throwing a slider. You know, you, you can handle all these tasks. And so basically when you're young, you have to be coached into doing that. And so my, my, overarching point here is that when you're completely consumed by how hard you throw on the mound it takes up all your processing power when you're right. like i gotta throw this ball as hard as i can i hope i hit 89 you throw it you turn it you look at the scoreboard radar gun dang that was 88 i'm gonna throw this next one harder it blocks out all the other stuff which is what's this hitter doing who is this hitter what, like what should i throw on the next pitch you don't have the processing power left over to then make intelligent pitch calling decisions and really see everything that's happening in front of you. And you, you see this over and over. I think it's, I think it's self-evident if you look at it this way, you see these kids that are completely obsessed with velocity. They go out there and everything in their mind is I'm going to throw the piss out of this ball as hard as I can. And they don't have any room left for other conscious thought. Whereas if you take a major league pitcher, they never, they don't care about their velocity anymore. They just have to get guys out. Cause if they get guys out, they can stay in the major leagues Yeah, and they don't, they don't care anymore. But even in the minor leagues, you have guys who they pitch like crap and they're like, oh, at least I hit 95 tonight. I'm, I'm excited. It's like, well, you suck. Like, you're not going to make it because of that, that attitude. Yeah. And then you got the like the, that influx of, of quote unquote pitching coaches now, like the new wave pitching coaches where it's all about spin rate. And, you know, let's see what let's see what the ball is doing. Let's get in the pitch lab where it's like, all right, you know, maybe take the take the stuff that got him there and teach this kid or teach this young player how to pitch. Teach him what, you know, okay, you see this from a hitter, like let's let's do this or you, let's – this is what your slider's doing today or this is what your pitch is doing. Let's try and locate it here instead of just throwing it, you know, how you normally throw it. Or it's like there's so much – there's not enough – I guess, I guess that's advanced scouting reports, right? Like, like, okay, this guy needs to do like, Hey, we got Dan Blewett here. Like he's got a good fastball, you know, 92, 94, he's got this curveball. He really needs to start pitching inside more and he needs to start doing this instead of trying to ramp up your, 
you know, your spin rate or your, you know, the bite on your curveball or whatever it is like that stuff's always being worked on. You know, that's kind of part of being a pitcher. You do, you know, you work on your stuff, but the ability to pitch is like lost, especially well, on because, young guys. Like, the yeah, it's thought because process. What, what you're talking about is they, they take a training mindset onto the mound. Like in practice, right. if you want to throw it as hard as you can into a wall or long toss as hard as you can, fine. You know, you want to like do all this stuff in the bullpen, okay. But when you get on the mound, if you're still thinking about your velocity or your spin rate or any of that stuff, you're thinking about the wrong things. When you get in right. the game, the thing, the thing mm -hmm. is, how do I win this game and get outs and hit my spot and do all that stuff? How do I execute my pitch? That's it. That's it. Yeah. And that's and, what, and, that's when you get better at actually executing pitches. That's how your command improves when you're focused on the task. Just like when you're playing, this is why kids that play when they're young, just like impromptu play, like on the backyard. Like I remember throwing rocks at stuff. It was never about velocity. It was like, I want to hit that thing off that tree or I want to shatter that bottle. And you're focused on the task and you, get engrossed in it and your brain is like how can i get my body to do this to hit that right. bottle with this rock and shatter it because that'll be fun that'll be fun but that's not the mindset kids have on the mound anymore even though that's like the thing they're trying to do is hit this hit the mitt they're thinking about i gotta throw this i gotta throw this this, is gonna, this one's gonna be 89 this one's gonna be 89 and that's why they can't throw strikes and that's why they they're just missing a large part of the game yeah and just for anybody listening if you have a high school son College coaches know that the velocity you put down on your sheet, on your recruiting sheet, they're taking two miles an hour off and deducting for the 15-yard run and gun that you're performing there. That's not a real indicator of velocity. I'm just hate to burst everyone's bubble. The guys that say they they did a pull down, quote unquote, of 90. Your velocity off the mound yeah, doesn't probably, matter. Doesn't matter. It's 80. It's 84, 85. We get it. And those coaches are not. They're smart. They're not just taking you at face value. They know, they know what it's, and it's unfortunate for the guys that are truthful. Honestly, the guys that give the normal velocity from a crouch behind the plate or from their position without five shuffles, because they're also being deducted when they might be true velocity. So true the truthful velocity. guys are getting mm -hmm. screwed. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it just, I mean, it, it just goes back to, again, if you're a parent listening, they're going to figure it out. So don't lie. Just tell them what you – if they're a pitcher, tell them what they throw off the mound. Their pull-down velocity doesn't really matter. I mean, it can – if you have, like, a video of them or something, I mean, it could be, like, an indicator, like, maybe there's more in the tank. It's not bad information to include otherwise. You might get guys who are like, I don't care about – like, I don't really care about it personally, but it's not always a bad idea to include. This is what he throws from the out from a running gun. Okay, but it's not his mound velocity. You can't say that's their velocity. Right. Because guys will throw 90 from a – running crow hop because if you're running eight miles per hour the throw starts at eight not zero so you know you can i've had kids that throw 84 hit 92 off a run and gun it's not relevant at all but um but yeah you just gotta be truthful about what you project so bob uh do we cover this topic thoroughly enough about velocity there's a lot to be said so. about it i'm about to I go mean, long toss just to get my velocity back up to where it needs to be I do want to go play catch with somebody. So if you're in the DC area and you want to play catch with me, just hit me up. Um, we'll go in the mall, chuck it off the Washington Monument, get arrested, whatever. Or the Lincoln Memorial. Yeah, speaking of which, if you haven't, <laughs> speaking of Abraham Lincoln, if you haven't, I'm going to plug my new YouTube video. I, uh, I'm doing some different stuff because it 
I enjoy it. So I made a little fake documentary about Abraham Lincoln's career as a baseball player. It's on my YouTube channel. If you're interested in uh, hearing, it's called Historical Scouting Report. So if you want to get the scouting report on how good Abraham Lincoln was as a player, you can do it. It's on my, it's on my YouTube channel. I think it's. I think it was fun to make. It was actually it took me like twenty hours to make that video. So, just appreciate yeah. it. Appreciate it for the effort that went into it. But I'm gonna and, I, and and honestly, you, I would have had. I had higher hopes for Abe Lincoln's talent. I think you know he should. He, he just, didn't he get just, enough. He just wasn't that good. You know, he, he didn't hit the weight good. room. He didn't hit the weight room early enough. Like just so, it's be like it was just a waste of talent. Personally, like he really had left yeah. a lot in the tank. Mary Todd would not have been impressed from the, from the stands. She, she didn't marry him. Yeah, she wasn't a cleat chaser. That's for sure. No, no. But my next episode is going to be uh, Jesus. How good was he? <laughs> Can he good, hit a curveball? Can he hit a curveball? Well, I am going to put that to bed. I'm going to put that to bed forever. So stay tuned. Probably in two weeks, something like that. I'll probably be done with it. But yeah. Um, so let's let's cover one last topic here, Bob. How do you feel about aluminum bats or else? What else do you got? Oh, aluminum bats. Aluminum bats are great for youth players because they are cost effective. They, cause kids 16 and under are breaking wood bats at a, if they had to use them at an exorbitant rate, they're just not yeah. going to be able to hit with yeah. wood bats. Um, even get to college. You got guys that use wood, like true wood bats, not composite that can't, barrel the ball up consistently and for anyone that's used a wood bat out there you know if you don't at least come somewhat in the vicinity of the barrel that thing is splintering it's breaking it's you you're losing a bat you're losing a hundred dollars so in a perfect world it's all wood all the time but in the in the world we live in aluminum serves a purpose now the the cost of these aluminum bats is absurd like, I don't know why you're buying a $400 bat over just your $100 bat. Um, I couldn't tell you the difference other than the color for some of these, but I'm very, I'm very pro wood bat. I love using wood bats. I love kids yeah. using wood bats, but I, I don't see any way that even college baseball moves to wood anytime soon. Yeah. I wish they would. Maybe if they're wood, maybe absorbs or kills coronavirus. Yeah, it's not a hard, it's not a it doesn't surface. transfer. It doesn't or maybe transfer. it goes into maybe it goes into the pores of the wood. Actually, maybe it probably makes everyone else less healthy. I don't know, but we're gonna have uh, Alan Nathan on the show at some point and talk about bats and coefficients and stuff like that. He's the physics professor from the University of Illinois. He's like the the physics of baseball guy. Um, talked to him on my previous podcast a bunch, and he's awesome with that, that that bat stuff i mean the thing with metal bats is you know, when they make the standard for you know bb core you know batted ball coefficient of restitution they're setting this as like this is illegal right here's the bar so when you buy a 250 dollars bat it might perform here 300 bat here 400 bat is like as close to being illegal as possible so essentially that's what you're paying for when you're buying a, a more expensive bat is how close can it be to illegal? It just takes yeah. more engineering, more engineering and higher tech materials and stuff like that to get a little extra oomph out of it. But is that worth it? It's hard to know. Like what's the difference between they don't, cause they're not going to publish like what the difference is between a $250 bat and a $4 bat as far as them being close to that absolute maximum, you know, ball speed off the bat. It might only be like, they're just being like three feet, you know, on a deep fly ball. We don't, right. we don't know. Um, 
I don't think it's as big of a deal as people will probably make it out to be. I don't think you're going to get 15 extra feet of carry on a $450 bat versus a $300 bat. That seems, but I don't also don't know. That just seems, it seems unrealistic that it would be that big of a difference. And you're when, assuming the yeah. and you're assuming the player himself is squaring up everyone perfectly 100% every time. Like that's, it's really the the real yeah. difference with wood and and aluminum is when you get jammed with aluminum, you've got a decent shot of punching it over the infield. Uh, if you're strong enough, you know, if you're an adult, a college yeah. player, where with wood that thing is dying in the infield. So dying I mean, you're gonna quails. get a, you're gonna get a few extra hits with aluminum just based purely on the how sturdy it is as a as an object, but it's not baseball. You, if you had the choice between the ping and that crack of the wood bat, I mean, that crack of the wood bat sends you into all kinds of, of memories from your childhood or especially um, going to your first baseball game or whatever. I just hate the ping of a, of a metal bat. It just, it's an obnoxious sound, especially being an indoor facility. Um, so let's wrap up with, with two things. Number one, Bobby, congratulations. Do you want to share? your family news yeah my uh my wife jenny and i are expecting our first child in november so i made the joke i said if you guys if i end up running away you guys don't uh don't don't come looking for me (laughs) but yeah we're uh late november so the podcast will still be running it'll be uh your favorite i'll have my you know i I keep referring to the baby we don't know the sex yet but i keep referring to him as little bob so if it's should i name should i name him you could, yeah. I think we should have posted on the on the Twitter. See what kind of names we get. We have no girl names currently. So with my sister, who just gave birth to her second child two weeks ago, which was kind of like an anxious thing, like having a baby during coronavirus. Right. Um, I they didn't they they always on their two kids so far they reveal the sex but not the name. They keep the names private and um, until their birth. And so. I just sort of codenamed her uh, like a silly, like old school, terrible name, which was Agnes, which if th- that's your name or that's your grandma's name, I'm, I'm not apologizing. It's just, there's a lot of old names that, you know, have aged out essentially. So right. her name, the baby's name was Agnes for forever. And uh, it was funny because I just like casually threw it like, Hey Annie, how, how are you and Agnes doing? And then it just like took off where my mom's friends were asking my mom how Annie and Agnes were doing. <laughs> like, like it just like she literally became Agnes. It was so funny to anyone in the network who knew Annie. My sister was pregnant. It was what is her name. A- how's Agnes doing? Ruby. What's her real- Ruby. Ruby. So yeah. no, not even close. No. Well, so, they would never name their child. Well, Agnes, it's, not, it's not like Amanda and they call her Agnes. Like, no, it's Ruby. <laughs> so I'll think of a name for your child and it'll be the official brushback name. Maybe Hector. Well, I keep Hector is a good name. So I keep uh, I keep joking with my wife that if it's if she doesn't come up with a girl name, it's just going to be Roberta for the for just a bad just a just a playoff of my name. Just Robert. Well, well I'll tell you what Roberta. I of course, yesterday was Memorial Day, so it would have been a good day to do it but i don't know i know how it would be going down arlington cemetery but i can jump on the metro and being arlington cemetery in 30 minutes and arlington cemetery is fascinating just because of like the time capsule of names so if you've never been there it's a really it's a obviously it's like a sacred ground for all of us here in, in the u.s with all the the soldiers from all the different you know wars but it's fascinating just walking through it and reading the names on the headstones because you're like you can kind of guess like what century they lived in 
right. based on their names. Like you see so many names that you've either never heard before or just you're like, that's got to be at least 150 years old. Like you got, you know, Otto and Ichabod and like all these just like crazy old names that you've never heard of men and women. So it's, it's like a really fascinating um, time capsule of, of just names in America. It's really interesting. So I'll go through there and I'll, I'll find you one. I'll go there this week and I'll find you. I'll, I'll give you your Rat. top old old school names. Yeah, Red, 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 Gretchen. Um, there's, those are even Red, like. Red is a solid sports name though. Like that just screams like. Red Stevens. Red, Red, Red Stevens. Stevens. That sounds awesome to be it's honest. It's like with the, you. that 70s show. Yeah. Well, that that was like a legit first name. Like I, I swear I, I I saw Red on a on a tombstone in Arlington Cemetery. So. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's just an, I don't think it's just a nickname, but it shouldn't be dude. Go with red Stevens. That's cool. It's just, it's quick. (laughs) It's easy. It's unique. It's not weird. Like Elon Musk's nonsense name for his kid. That's just, come on, dude. Like, come on. Yeah. It made news the second time this week because they changed the last, the number 12 to Roman numerals as if that it's like, come on people. What is your T what is, what is that kid's teacher going to call him? What is he going to call himself? He's going to be like red. There's an outside chance that he thinks that it's kind of cool. That he's got a unique name, but the vast majority is like, this is an inconvenient name to write on any legal document to write on my piece of paper as a, as a six year old in kindergarten. That's assuming like at every point, it's right. just like so annoying to like, that's but he my might legal be living. Name. He might be living on Mars by that time. That kid might be on Mars. We won't be on, on Mars within 20 years. No shot. Mark and and I listened to a podcast and since I know you love conspiracies, love it was them. a what was this podcast? But they were talking about Mars. That it's just unrealistic when we think about Mars, what we know about it, to think we're ever really going to inhabit it and why we would want to inhabit it because it's such a toxic planet. Like it's just very far from the habitability of Earth, and it might be sure the the next most habitable one. But who's going to like go and colonize it to be basically living in a bubble and you know, in this, he, he had a lot of really good points about why colonizing Mars does not seem like a fun endeavor if it's not a hundred percent necessary for the survival of our, our race. And it might not, and it might not. I agree. Be. I'm, I'm very anti uh, space travel. I don't think if, I don't think we're advanced enough, but Dan, here's a good conspiracy. I'll, I'll send you off with what yeah. if, what if we already lived on Mars and destroyed that planet? And then we just moved to, what is that's our Earth. that's our trash that's our trash planet that's our that's already we've already trashed that planet and now we're here i like that conspiracy that's interesting it's our ruins it's our dumpster it's, that's that's it's, it, it is i'm going to start referring to mars as our dumpster okay i'm on bar with that that's a hey you had a good day with trump you like reason that he wasn't maybe right on attacking I'm going to treat myself and, today. And, this and you, had a, you had a conspiracy that wasn't <laughs> absolutely insane and really just fun. I mean, I don't think that's probably the case, but no, it's but like kind of a fun, a fun thing to think about. This has been a good day for me. I'm, I, I, we should end this before I ruin it. Okay. Well, on that note, if you're out there, thank you for listening. Be sure to check us out on Spotify, iTunes. Uh, if you haven't yet, please leave us a review. We always appreciate it. We've got a handful of them, but they help grow the show. Always feel free to leave a comment if you're listening on Periscope, Twitter, or YouTube. And uh, we will see you here on Friday for the next installment of the morning brushback. Say thank goodbye, you Bobby. Our, Say thank goodbye. You, thank you to our unofficial sponsor, Jeff Sinsmore, and we'll see everybody Friday.